I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live right now, or later, or on our podcast online, which will be later because that doesn't get put on until later in the week. Come on back. It is my great joy to welcome you this morning. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here. Before we jump in, I want to announce one more time that we hit our goal of raising $20,000 for our Beyond Us initiative. It's awesome. In case you're not aware, from September through December, we raised funds to go toward local and global work beyond this church. So yes, we have bills to pay. Yes, doing what we do every single week costs money, and we need our church family to help fund that. But we also realize that God has placed us in this city to make an impact beyond this church, right? So we make pushes every year beyond our walls to serve and aid and add value to the lives of people who do not attend this church as well. Um, and I'm thrilled to announce we had a large percentage of our church participate in giving um, this year towards this initiative. We hit our $20,000 goal, and this week the money went out. It was awesome. Some of the gifts we made online, some of them I made, just wrote out a check, put them in the, in the mail. Yesterday we took a walk to the mailbox, and I had Aria stick them in the mailbox, and it was so cool. I was just explaining, this money's going to go out to do this. This money's going to go help these people. It's so exciting. If you gave, thank you. The radical generosity of our church family is going to impact a lot of people. The Harvest Home. They're a, they house homeless pregnant women on the west side. I empathize. They're fighting to end child exploitation here in L.A. and beyond L.A. Graceland Church, serving individuals and families in Franklin, Tennessee, our global partners, sharing the hope of Jesus in dangerous locations in East Africa. The Southern California Network of the Assemblies of God, they're doing a project right now to care for Syrian refugees, providing food, water, education, counseling, and health care. The orphanage in Colombia that we sent a team to go visit in the summer, they're building a government-mandated nursery and then local benevolence projects here in L.A. that we're going to take part in. Guys, we've are, we're, like, we're doing this work. We're adding value. We're, we're, we're joining God in the work he's doing in our world I'm so excited, and I've already received responses back from some of our local and global partners for this initiative. They were just filled with gratitude, express, expressing gratitude and joy and thanksgiving for the work that our church is doing, um, the excitement for where the funds are going to go. This is the kind of church the world needs. This is the kind of church family and church that is compelling to those who have been hurt by the church, right? It's a lot of people that have been hurt, hurt by the church, especially in L.A., it's a lot of people that have been hurt by the church, and they don't want just one more place that's going to tell them rules and, and exclude them and hurt them. They want, they want to see the body of Christ making impacts in the world the way Jesus did. Following Jesus is not about a list of rules. It's about joining Jesus and offering wholeness to brokenness. It's about join, joining Jesus in the ongoing creation of the world. Thank you for being that kind of church. I'm honored to stand with you as God uses us to bless people beyond us. Amen? All right. We're continuing our January sermon series, Freedom in Discipline. This month, we're delving into some spiritual disciplines. In case you're not familiar with the term spiritual disciplines, they're spiritual exercises. They train and they form us spiritually. They form our souls. The end goal of the Jesus tradition is not getting to heaven. I don't know what you've been told before, but the goal is not getting to heaven. It's permitting heaven and the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus to invade our souls. 
It's about here and now. The spiritual disciplines are about opening us up to hold more heaven right now. The reality is we were created in the image of God, but being made into the likeness of God takes a while. And it takes a lot of work. So we engage in spiritual disciplines, spiritual exercises that stretch our character and they strengthen our spirits over time. So what we're doing is we're colliding with God through these spiritual disciplines and he offers us new wholeness, new power, new freedom. So this is what we're talking about for the month of January, discovering freedom in discipline. And we're hitting some of the lesser talked about spiritual disciplines. There's more widely talked about spiritual disciplines. We're, we're doing some of the, the lesser talked about ones. So last week I spoke, spoke about discovering freedom in simplicity, that there are external voice, voices attempting define, to, to define our internal realities. And as we go to war with them, we find new power, we find new freedom to choose simpler lives. I encourage you to go back and listen to the message. If you missed it, you can find it on our Facebook Live page or on our podcast through our website. Next week, I'll be preaching on confession, and the week after that, the last Sunday of the month, I'll be preaching on celebration. Today, I want to preach a message entitled, Freedom in Silence and Solitude. Freedom in Silence and Solitude. I'm ready to preach this morning. I hope you guys are ready to listen. If not, oh well. (laughs) You showed up to the wrong room today. I want to talk about noise and about crowds and how noise and crowds have the potential to hold us captive. They have a way of holding us captive or limiting us regarding how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others. So we're going to unpack this morning discovering freedom in the discipline of silence and solitude. And here's how I'd like to begin. God's first language is silence. So said the 16th century Spanish mystic, St. John of the Cross, he's one of the greats. God's first language is silence. You ever think about what language we'll speak in heaven? Just an interesting concept. Will we all speak one language? Will we all understand each other's native tongue? Will we even need words to communicate meaning or depth or love? We're relational beings. God built us for intimacy, for communication with each other. But paradoxically, words are not required for intimacy or to communicate. In fact, maybe you've experienced it before. Sometimes words have this profound way of getting in the way of intimacy or communication. Silence is a very powerful medium. And then one of the other greats, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 20th century German anti-Nazi pastor, theologian. This is what he wrote. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. And let him who is not in community beware of being alone. you got to work a little bit more for this one. But essentially what he's getting at is you can hide in relationships and you can hide in isolation. You can surround yourself with crowds of people. You can neglect the quiet alone. But because of that neglect, you can do harm to the people that you surround yourself with. And you can remain in the quiet alone constantly, neglecting people, and because of that neglect, you can do harm to your lonely self. Silence, solitude. These are they're spectacular partners. Um, th- there is a discipline of silence. There's a discipline of solitude. They kind of just go hand to hand. To hand. They're, they're perfect partners, like, like Han and Chewy, or, or Tom and Jerry, or Wreck-It Ralph and Vanellope, if you've seen, I love it. Allies, 
who, when combined, they can have this significant impact on the way you order your world. You see, our culture promotes the notion that crowds and noise, it indicates when, when something is significant or when someone is, is um, successful. Crowds and noise, they, just, they, they mean this. If you can make noise visual, visually, audibly, if you can attract a crowd doing it, you're going to be successful. Because let's be real, how much talent does it take to sit on a park bench and shut your mouth? It takes real talent to draw a crowd, to draw views, to draw likes, to draw followers. Now, perhaps our culture is just, just proclaiming what matters to us, what we think success looks like. I think we need to dig a level deeper. I think it reveals what our culture is afraid of. It's, I don't think it's just a matter of preference. I don't prefer being alone, or I'm not a fan of stillness, or I just don't enjoy the quiet. I think it's deeper than that. In some sense, I think our culture is enslaved to noise and crowds. I don't know what to do with stillness. When I'm left to myself, the quiet is deafening. And that's a hell of a lot scarier than if I'm at a concert and my chest is pounding because of the subwoofers. There's a deeper reality, a deeper terror that drives us to noise and crowds. So what I want to do today is invite you to discover freedom in silence and solitude. To do so, I want to I show you a story in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's a story about one of the most beloved prophets of the Hebrew people. His name was Elijah. He inspired his people. He performed radical miracles. He, had, he even had this fantastic death or non-death. That's a fun one to look into later. Elijah had some wild moments with God. And the one I want to show you today is found in the book of 1 Kings. And before we jump into that, I, want, I need to set the story up a little bit. So here's some context. 1 Kings chapter 18, we read about this battle. And it's not some ordinary battle. It's a battle of the gods. Elijah representing Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, and then 450 prophets of Baal. And if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, even the New Testament, Baal seems, he appears to be this like long-standing competitor to Yahweh. He keeps showing up. And here's how the battle goes down. Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, how about we both take a bull and we sacrifice it, and we have our own altar with wood, and we place it on there. Then we call on our gods, and whichever one answers with fire, that God wins. Whichever one sends fire from heaven to light our altar on fire, that's the true God. Talk about put your money where your mouth is, right? Or your money where your faith is, or your faith where your mouth is, however you want to word it. Elijah throws it down. And the prophets of Baal are ready to go. They're like, yeah, let's do it. So Elijah goes first. He says, or he defers. He says, why don't you guys go first? So they begin. They take a bowl. They prepare it. They set it on the wood. And they begin calling out to Baal, answer us. They shouted. They danced. Nothing. And at noon, Elijah starts to taunt them a little bit. He's like, maybe you should shout a little louder. Maybe Baal is just deep in thought or he's busy or he's traveling or perhaps he's asleep and you just need to wake him up. He's like, it's total tongue in cheek. So they shout louder and they even begin to cut themselves with swords and spears as was their custom. All day, nothing. So Elijah steps up. He grabs 12 stones. He builds an altar. And just before he, he begins, he says, oh yeah, can some of you guys grab like four jars of water, fill that up and just pour it all over mine? 
So they do it. And then he says, actually, you know, how about you, uh, can you do that one more time? Grab four more jars of water. Can you pour it on top of the whole thing? So they do that again. They douse it again. And he says, you know what? Three's a nice round number. Let's just do it one more time. Kicks and giggles. You know, I like things really wet before I light them on fire. Douse it. His altar is sopping. And the prophets of Baal are watching curiously. And Elijah steps forward and he prays, Yahweh, answer me so that these people will know that you're the one true God. And fire pours out from heaven. It lights up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones. It drinks up all the water. And the prophets of Baal fall to their knees yelling, Yahweh is God. However, because their laws, their customs at this moment, these are proven to be false prophets, and all 450 prophets of Baal are killed. And this is where we jump in. So if you brought your Bible or your Bible app, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. We've got Bibles on the, on the connection table in the back if you, if you don't have one and you like holding one. Feel free to take one of those home even. And I'll have the text up on the screen as well. And you know what's awesome? The story that I want to tell you about a wild moment Elijah had with God, that wasn't even it. <laughs> That's the backstory before we even get to the story I want to share. It's so good. All right, this is 1 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate it and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. There is so much going on here lying just below the surface. So I want to unpack some of this for you. You guys ready? Anybody heard this story before? Cool. At this time, Ahab is king, and he saw the battle of the gods go down. He saw the whole thing. He saw the 450 prophets of Baal killed, and then he goes home after a long day and has a conversation with his wife. How was your day, honey? That was all right. How was your day? Boy, do I have a story for you. I got to tell you what happened. He tells her the whole thing. Now, his wife's name is Jezebel. 
And in case you need me to clear this up for you, Jezebel is not a nice person. In fact, any of you know anybody named Jezebel? Yeah, there's a reason for that. There's a reason we don't have little Jezebels running around our church on Sunday mornings. There's a reason Jezebel is, is not on the list of top names for baby names. By the way, 2018, Sophia and Jackson. And already for 2019, Ava and Noah, just if you're curious. You know what names aren't going to be at the top of that list? Lucifer and Jezebel. You're not going to see them. Jezebel is a horrible woman. She's malicious and vile and power drunk, and she loved the prophets of Baal. She even supported them out of the royal treasury. So when she finds out that all of their blood is on Elijah's hands, she's ticked. She turns into a little, I'm thinking of a word, I can't. Anybody got a good word to put there? Turns into a little, uh, oh, Jezebel. That's a, thank you, Sean. Man, it's perfect. It's a perfect word there. Jezebel sends a message to Elijah. May the gods deal with me severely if you're not dead by this time tomorrow. What a power move. I'm so angry, I'm going to kill you, and I'm so powerful, I can give you the heads up, and I'm still going to take your head off. And he's freaked. And you got to feel for him. He's hoping this battle would have changed something. It would have saved the court, maybe even the country. People are going to hear what happened here, and they're going to turn their hearts back to the one true God. How can you not? After what just happened, how can you not turn your heart to God? Instead, she gets this death sentence from Maleficent. So what does Elijah do? He takes his servant, and he runs for Beersheba. Now, I know most of you guys are caught up on your ancient Near Eastern cartography. So just as a reminder, a little geography for you. The trip he makes to Beersheba, Beersheba was close to 100 miles. So imagine starting here and taking a walk to Santa Barbara. And then after he gets to Beersheba, he leaves his servant and walks another day into the wilderness by himself. And there, he lies down under a broom bush or a broom tree, and he looks to heaven and he asks Yahweh, take my life. It's so fascinating. I mean, he just, like what he just saw. God caused fire to rain from the sky. This is an astounding demonstration of the supernatural. But then he gets a death threat, and he asks God to take his life. He says, that's it. I've had enough. Take my life. I can't take this anymore, God. I'm stressed out. I'm exhausted. I'm at the end of myself. My work has had no effect. All of this is worthless. Just take me out. It's such an honest and vulnerable prayer. One of those, I'm at the end of myself prayers. And then he falls asleep. And what does he wake up to? An angel of God. In fact, a chef angel of God. <laughs> Didn't know God made chef angels? You learn something new every day, right? Get up, Elijah. I just made you some artisan ciabatta. Also, here's some water. Fill your belly. So he eats. He drinks. Goes back to sleep. And what does he wake up to? The smell of something wonderful. The chef was working on another recipe. Get up, Elijah. I baked you some Asiago focaccia. Also, here's some water. Fill your belly because you're about to make a journey, and it's going to be a doozy. And Elijah feels strengthened. He feels nourished by this food. So he sets off on a journey to Horeb. Now, I know you're all caught up on your Eastern, Near Eastern ancient cartography, so just as a reminder to you all, this trip is another 200 miles. So you could think of it like this. Elijah gets a death threat from the queen, and he walks from Santa Monica to Yosemite. 
Second part of this trip took 40 days. And when he reaches Horeb, he goes into a cave to spend the night. Now, Horeb is very special to the Hebrew people. 21st century Americans can read this, the story that we just read, and they're like, okay, Horeb cave, big whoop, cool. But Horeb is the mountain of God, and it has another name. Maybe you're a little bit more familiar with it. It's Mount Sinai. Many scholars believe this cave to be the very location where God appeared to Moses, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, where the nation of Israel became a nation in covenant with God. You see, at this time, there's likely no location on the planet that is more associated with the presence of God. If the Hebrews were to say, were to to be asked, if God had a home on earth, where do you think he would live? They would say, it would be Horeb. That's where God is. So it's not by accident that Elijah finds himself at Horeb. He's discouraged. He's afraid. Where should he go? Maybe the one place in the world where you could argue God is there. It's like he's searching for another God experience. He goes to a place where an experience should have been found, Sinai, Horeb. But he forgets something really important, that God was with him long before he showed up to Horeb. So look how God responds. What are you doing here, Elijah? And the Hebrew translates, or it suggests kind of a playful nature in God's tone. Almost like he's saying, I'm not only here, Elijah. Elijah responds, I'm zealous to see you, God. Everyone else has forsaken you. In fact, I'm the only one left, and I'm about to be killed too. And what God does next, this whole next flow is so creative. It's, I think it pulls on God's creative and just like good parenting side. He tells Elijah, make your way up the mountain because God's going to pass by him. Go up there. Keep going further. The Lord is about to pass by. And the literal of it can be read, you're about to see my backside or my hind parts. You can't handle all of me. I'm going to pass by and you'll just get my hind parts. But don't worry, Elijah, that's going to be more than enough for you. And no doubt, Elijah is stoked because he knows exactly what this means because God told Moses almost something identical. Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, hide yourself behind a rock because I'm about to pass by. Elijah's thinking, oh, dang, Moses was here and God told him what he just told me. It's about to go down. And then a violent wind blows so powerful that it's breaking rocks off the mountain, God's not in the wind. And then an earthquake shakes the very ground beneath his feet. God's not in the earthquake. Then fire engulfs the mountain. God's not in the fire. And this is so good. This, see what, you got to see what God's doing here. On this very mountain, these were the very forms in which God showed up to Moses. Wind and earthquake and fire. Or if you'd rather, earth, wind, and fire. Pretty cool, right? (laughs) These were the stories told from generation to generation after Moses. On Horeb, God showed up in wind, in earthquake, in fire. These were the formative moments for the Hebrew people. They were moments that marked time for the Hebrew people. It was part of their tradition. It was part of their communal narrative. These explosive God encounters in these elements on this mountain, yet this time he was in none of them. So clever. 
I mean, it's like you could hear God saying, hey, Elijah, remember hearing about me here as wind, as earthquake, as fire? But you do realize I'm not limited to those, right? It's like he says, Elijah, you're trying to recreate what happened before when my presence fell. Like you're trying to clone someone else's experience of me. But I'm God. I'm not controllable. I'm unfigureoutable. I will not be confined to a method or to a formula. So after the wind and after the earthquake and after the fire came a gentle whisper, or what the Hebrews call it, a voice of gentle silence. There's a bunch of discussion revolving around this conversation about what this voice is or was. Because some scholars believe the sound we're talking about isn't even a sound you can audibly hear with your ears. Some, some scholars translated that God was in the sound of sheer silence. God meets Elijah in the quiet whisper or this gentle, thin silence instead of these like earth-shaking spectacles that, that came before. And when Elijah hears it, he has enough sense to put his cloak over his face, and then he stands at the mouth of the cave. He's like, okay, God, I get it. You're not going to show up in those fancy ways, those flashy, that flashy stuff. You're in the nothing. We witness this shift in Elijah from seeking an experience of God to seeking God, which are very different. Often Christians tend to get like addicted to the experience of God. Oh, it feels so good. I love how it feels more so than actually seeking God. And Elijah, you see this moment kind of in it. I get it. I don't want what you had for Moses. I want what you have for me. Even if I don't really even have a file for it yet. Even if I don't even know where to put that yet. And if you keep reading, you see God give, give him some instruction for what to do ne- next. And it fits in the larger story of his life and the larger narrative of Israel's history. But we're going to stop here because I want to talk about this voice of gentle silence. God in the nothing. God in the unknowing. And it's what I want to invite you into this week. To encounter God in the divine whisper. To encounter the voice of gentle and divine silence because he offers us freedom in that. Now, there are a lot of benefits to the discipline of spiritual, of of silence and solitude, the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude. But what I want to do today is just highlight like three consequences or three effects that I've experienced in the regular practice of silence and and solitude. Three discoveries, if you will. And I'm going to throw them at you all at once, and I'm just going to unpack them a little. So this is what it is. In silence and solitude... We discover freedom to hear God's voice, to be alone but not lonely, and to surrender the approval of others. Freedom to hear God's voice, to be alone but not lonely, and to surrender the approval of others. Now, in no way are these three the only things that you experience or discover in silence and solitude. And actually, what I can assure you is that if you make solitude and silence a regular spiritual discipline for you, a regular practice, I'm sure of it, your list of discoveries will grow beyond these three. Because God meets people in different ways. But there are some similarities. These are crucial discoveries that God is at work to produce in all of us. And one of the ways he produces it in us is through this, this discipline. Over time, you can bet your backside that these will rest on you, gently from heaven. Probably not the way you imagined or the way you wanted it or the time that you wanted it. But over time, you can bet your hind parts that as you encounter God's hind parts, 
this will bubble up. This happens. And all three of these deserve their own sermon. Oh, I just hit that. That was good. All three of these deserve their own sermon. They deserve to be unpacked. Um, I just don't have the time and the space for it. I could do a series on this. But I just kind of want to like quickly touch on each of them. So discovering freedom to hear God's voice. Why? Because we've shut up the other noises. We're bombarded with noise. We're bombarded with voices and distraction. So when we seclude ourselves for a moment and we make ourselves present to God, we discover this greater capacity in ourselves to hear that voice, which actually comes up from within most often, not from outside. And sometimes all we needed to get the direction or the wisdom or the guidance we've been asking for, anybody ever ask God for wisdom and guidance and direction? Sometimes all that's needed is to shut up for a moment in stillness before our creator. So over time, as we practice this, as it gets worked out in us, we discover this this increased internal freedom to hear the voice of God. We also experience freedom to be alone, but not lonely. The fear of loneliness petrifies people. When I talk with people, and I kind of get to the root of like, where is this coming from? 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 You dig, 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 dig. When you get to the bottom, almost every time it's, I'm afraid to be alone. I'm afraid of like, if I'm left to myself, if I'm abandoned, I'm rejected. I mean, my four-year-old daughter is already getting this. She, she doesn't want to be alone. It's like, it's, it's, it's in us deep. So what happens is this fear, it drives us to noise and to crowds. And I would argue even introverts just in different ways. But in the silence and the solitude, we discover the, the voice of Jesus calling us from loneliness to solitude. And loneliness is this, like, it's an inner emptiness. But solitude is this inner abundance. It's like a fullness that bubbles up from within. And this kind of solitude, it gets deposited into us only in the presence of God. And when we discover it, that inner freedom We never need to fear being alone because we realize we're never alone. The divine presence, that sheer, that gentle silence, it exists deep in our bones all day long wherever we go. So we find ourselves free to be alone while not being lonely. Does that make sense? And then we discover freedom to surrender the approval of others. Here's what I've experienced. When you sit with God for long periods of time, eventually his, his voice starts to bubble up. And you begin to recognize it. There's just like a, an affectionate familiarity. It just kind of logs somewhere. Oh, yeah. That's the voice of our creator, our maker, our sustainer. And when that voice speaks, he says things like, I know you because I sculpted you. And I love you just as you are, not as you should be. And eventually we begin to believe it. I'm loved. I'm accepted. I'm enough in his presence. So the approval of peers and family and coworkers, it doesn't satisfy like it used to. I used to love Starbucks coffee. I used to crave it. I used to spend money on it. Then I tasted specialty coffee, brewed correctly. And then I tasted it again. And then I tasted it again. Starbucks doesn't satisfy like it used to. In fact, I don't want to drink it anymore. Right? (laughs) Eventually, the approval of the people that make up your world, it's not going to satisfy like it used to. Because God's approval, his affection, his devotion to you, when you discover it in that silence and solitude, they will be more than enough for you. You'll discover this newfound freedom 
to surrender the approval of others to God because you won't need it like you used to. Now, many people ask this, but how do I actually practice silence and solitude? It's really hard. Where do I go? What do I bring? How much do I talk? My mind won't shut off. What do I do with the thoughts that just keep strolling? Anybody ever thought any of those thoughts before, right? Yes. Really good questions. And what I want to do today to, like, to end this, to kind of close the sermon, is to give you some suggestions for how to hang out with God in the silence and the solitude. Because this week, I'm going to challenge you to carve out an hour to spend with God. Not split up. An hour straight where you sit with God, undistracted, in the silence and in the solitude. How do we accomplish that? Here are some suggestions for you. First, go to a quiet place, preferably outside. Now, I know there's noise in L.A. I get that. (laughs) But go to as quiet a place as you can. Can you do this inside? Of course you can. But there's something about viewing God's creation that lights up a part of us, that just like touches a part of our soul that a white painted wall doesn't. So go somewhere where you can view God's creation, a generally quiet, distractionless place where you can see what God has created, a park, a beach, a cemetery, a garden. And when you go, don't bring a Bible or a book or worship music. We're not doing study time. We're not doing worship time. We're slowing down our souls. We're stilling ourselves in silence before God. Because here's what people tend to do. We hide in the Bible. We hide from God in his word. We hide from God in worship music. We hide from God in a book because it's easier. It meets an immediate need. Because when you have to stand before God naked and vulnerable, sometimes that is intimidating Sometimes that is scary. Sometimes it's confusing, and it's a lot harder work. It's like reading a book versus watching a movie. Almost every time the book is better, right? But you got to work for it. Silence and Solitude is one of those ones where, like, you got to work for this, but there's something that you experience in there that it can't be replicated anywhere else. So don't hide behind anything. Just show up to God. The one thing you should bring is a journal. Bring a journal. Because while this might be a time for silence and solitude, sometimes God just hits you with heaven. I've had these experiences when I'm sitting in the quiet, overlooking the ocean or overlooking a cemetery, and then it's like God goes, and like, I just get hit with all this revelation. And when that happens, you're going to want something to write something down, like something to write on. So bring a journal just in case. However, don't just journal because you can hide from God in journaling. (laughs) That's not the point, okay? Bring it just in case. Another suggestion, turn off your phone. Well, what if somebody needs me? Schedule this when people probably won't need you, and if someone does need you, they can wait an hour. And then this is how we do it. This is how we do it. I did not have that in my notes. That just totally hit. It was good. Divine inspiration. Make yourself present to God. Don't fill the space talking to God. Make yourself present to God. Don't fill the space talking to God because those aren't the same thing. To demonstrate or just to to exemplify this, we don't practice silence by talking. 
Does that make sense? <laughs> it sounds really easy, right? What we tend to do is we go to the silence and the solitude and then we talk. So we don't practice silence by talking. Show up. Shut up. <laughs> make yourself present to God who's already there, already present to you. What does that look like? You bring to mind and you bring to heart the fact that God is in you. And he's with you. You don't have to conjure him up. Hey, God, would you meet me here? The funny thing, like even in church circles, we often pray, God, would you, would you be with them? We don't have to pray that, right? He's like, he's in them. He's with them already. So you don't have to conjure up the spirit of God to be with you in this moment. Make yourself present to the spirit that's already there. And, and, and realize that this next hour is going to be a moment for intimacy and connection with you and God. So don't just fill the space talking. And then use your effort to, to muster the intellectual energy, the emotional energy to just make yourself present to God for an hour. So you're in God, you're with God, you're present to him. And then, this part's really important, as your mind drifts, bring Jesus into that thought. As your mind drifts, bring Jesus into that, sh- that thought. And I'll show you how this works. This is what it would look like. Thinking about God. He's been so good. I'm present to God. I've had some challenges lately, though. Work's been really hard. Primarily because of my boss. He's a real jerk. I can't stand my boss. You know, I should really quit soon. I have no idea where I would work, though. I've always wanted to get into graphic design, though. Oh, dang. There went five minutes. That happens. Quick, right? And then we get, we get down on ourselves. Oh, I wasn't present to God. Like, no, it's okay. Just bring Jesus into it. God, thank you for providing me a job. Jesus, thank you that you're at work in my work, even in ways that I'm not even aware of right now. And then gently come back to the stillness and gently come back to the silence. I'm with God. That makes sense? And sometimes we have to do that over and over and over and over. And it's okay. The goal is not don't just think nothing. It's just be with God. And you're going to think things. And then he might throw something at you like, wow, I didn't realize how pissed off I am at my dad. Wow. Or I didn't realize how much that moment hurt me. And I have like deep bitterness and, and resentment, resentment towards that person now. These are the moments where that stuff bubbles up, and normally we feel the uncomfort, and we're like, oh, let's turn on a song, or oh, let's put on a movie, or oh, let's go to a party, right? And the silence of solitude gives space for God to bubble this stuff up to the surface. And then lastly, be content if God just wants to be with you in the silence. I think this one's really important. Be content if God just wants to be with you. I think of some of my favorite moments with my wife, Amanda. Sometimes it's when we share silence together. Nothing has to be said. Nothing is forced. Of course, we love to talk to each other, but some moments, just the look in her eyes or the way she's breathing or the way we embrace each other, that says more than words could in that moment. And I think it works similar with God. Sometimes God loves to speak to us. Sometimes we say, God, speak, and he goes, You get this gentle whisper. You're like, yes, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where that came from. I just got it. And other times, I think he just wants to to be in a moment with us where we can gaze into each other's eyes and listen to each other breathe, embrace each other. And in those moments, more is said than could have been said if words were used because God is not limited to words. So if God wants to be with you in silence, Just receive that as a divine gift, as a precious gift from your heavenly Father. This never goes down the way we want it to. (laughs) You go hang out with God, it's really frustrating sometimes. 
And sometimes that's the goal, is to show you that God says, I'm not controllable, I'm not figureoutable. This is not a formula. These are suggestions. Go hang out with God. I want to invite up the worship team to come back up as we go into a, 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 spo- a response time right now. In song, in prayer, we're going to have a couple prayers back at the connection table. I don't know what God is stirring right now in you. Maybe something I've said has just deeply connected. Maybe a word or a phrase or an idea, it just touched you in your soul. Or maybe God is doing something that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. And that's awesome. We just want to give some space for you to respond to God with what he's doing. So if you need to sing, sing. If you just need to hear a song sung over you, allow that. If you need to sit in stillness for a moment because your week is crazy busy and fast and hurried, I'm creating a spot for you to stop. You don't have to do anything. Or maybe you need a friend or brother or sister in Christ to stand with you and pray for you because you don't know how to use the words right now. I want to invite you this week to create space for silence and for solitude and to wait on God. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be honest. You might ask, well, what if he doesn't show up? And it's true. It's risky. I'm going to give God an hour. I got a lot going on. I have a lot to accomplish. You say it. I go to the beach. I go to a park or cemetery. Sure. I show up. What if I put myself out there and God does not show up? Like showing up for a blind date and I get stood up. What if he doesn't show up, Josh? I think a better question. What if he does show up? What if he shows up? What if you carve out an hour this week to spend time with the being who carved you out of eternity and he shows up so powerfully that it changes your life? What if all it took is to show up to Jesus, to say something to you that completely alters and transforms your soul and the way you order the world? What if all it took was retreating to the quiet alone for an hour this week and waiting for him? Isn't it worth the risk? Because while I can't offer you a blueprint of what your time with God will look like, I can offer you witness what I've experienced. I've experienced divine love and glory and transformation in his presence. I've heard the divine whisper. I've encountered solitude without loneliness. I've experienced freedom to surrender the approval of others to God. And I've experienced these moments, this freedom in silence and solitude. So I invite you, try it for yourself. Sit with God for an hour this week in the quiet alone and dare him to reveal himself to you. Like Elijah said, answer me. Dare him to show up. And I'll tell you this, God does not plan on fulfilling your expectations. That's the frustrating part. And he revealing himself to you rarely goes down how we think it should. But God loves to reveal himself to his children. He loves it when his kids say, God, I want to know you. God, I want to encounter you. Show yourself to me. So I invite you this week to give yourself an opportunity to encounter God 
and to give yourself an opportunity to discover true freedom in silence and in solitude. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we make ourselves present to you in this moment. Whatever you want to accomplish here right now, we give you space, we give you room, we give you permission. Your will be done, oh God.